Hello everyone, it's December 17th, 2019. So Rocket Lab is moving up in the world with a new launch complex north of the equator at Wallops. And OSIRIS-REx is heading north too with a landing site selected in Bennu's far northern region. There's your superficial thematic tie-in. Let's do the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 240 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And a suspicious silence. <laughs> yep. And no Dennis. So yeah, we've been just going back and forth on who's not here, except for me. I've shown yeah. up every time so far. Uh, but Dennis is uh, sick. He's got a cold or flu. Don't know which. I guess this is just a time of year when, when that's going to happen because people are traveling and people are getting sick and they're probably getting sick because they're traveling. So yeah. And especially at the end of the year, like this is kind of when everything comes. Yeah. So probably worth mentioning that we're um, putting out this episode. We'll put out an episode next week, and then we're taking the week after Christmas off. So just just FYI, that's that's what's going to happen. Which we usually do. Although I think, yeah, we usually do the week of Christmas. Yeah. But we're just going to push it back one week since you have some traveling to do. Well, I think I think normally we, we pick the week that I end up traveling on. And normally I travel before Christmas. But this year I'm actually going to drive down to my folks' house on Christmas Day. So I'll be, I'll be down there the weekend after Christmas. Uh, my goal, well, so it's, it's my sister's uh, 30th birthday. So we're kind of all trying to get together to celebrate that. Um, she, her birthday is on the 20th. So close enough uh, to lump it into Christmas for us. And so I'm my, sure she appreciates that. Uh, no, in the past, I mean, as kids, like it was a very distinct thing, but this time, you know, we're just going to travel for one thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so my main goal is to, you know, wish her happy birthday and, you know, have a drink with her and, you know, that, but <laughs> my real true goal is to get over to Disney to see the new, uh, the new star Wars area they've got set up because it looks oh, okay. really good. They have a, interesting. Uh, yeah, they have a millennium Falcon, like a one-to-one model. That would be cool to see. I would like to see that. So I assume you can't go in it, right? I don't believe so. I, I don't know. They they may like... Because, I mean, that's something that's practical because it's not too big. Like, you can't do that with the Starship Enterprise, but you can do it right. with the Millennium Falcon. Well, and, and to, to build a Millennium Falcon that actually has as much empty space in it as the real Millennium Falcon, that starts to get a little difficult. But, you know, if you if you pick a couple of corridors, then that's good enough. Right. But then I, I think what they, what they did is you can't actually go in the Millennium Falcon, but they turned star tours into millennium falcons so instead of flying a star tours shuttle or whatever they call it you actually get to fly the millennium falcon oh really okay i mean i went on star tours a long time ago like as a kid uh-huh. and i don't know if it's if it's still the same from what well I they they updated it no they updated it like uh i don't know two or three years ago I guess it was probably longer probably around when they started doing the new star wars and they updated it and it I liked the original better because um, they put, I think they put, um, they, they swapped out the droid. It wasn't the one with like the sun visor that flips down and they kind of changed the, the whole thing. But I don't know. I like the original one, but I'm really excited to do this one. It's called, I think they're calling the game or the uh, the ride uh, Smuggler's Run. Cool. I like that. Yeah. I don't remember what the premise was for the first one. You were just kind of, you, were, you were just, you were just doing like a, a short shuttle run and then you got interrupted by the. Um, by, by like a battle between the rebels and the empire or something. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, on the millennium Falcon, you actually like get assigned a role, like you're a gunner or you're a pilot and like, 
I can't wait to to go on this ride. I think it's going to be really cool. That sounds like it'll be <laughs> a lot of fun. I, I would. It's it's maybe the one reason to go. Well, so on the West Coast, it's at Disneyland because yeah. on the East Coast, it's in Universal. No, I think it's at MGM. Actually, I'm not sure which. Well, Dis Disney now owns Star Wars, so I don't know mm-hmm. what the current situation is, but I would expect that they're not going to leave it at another studio's. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. yeah so there's yeah, going to it, it changed, pick up the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, the property changed hands. So yeah, I think at this point Disney owns. Uh, everything so yeah uh everything minus what apple owns you know it's just a matter of time until apple and disney merge and then you know the only person they're gonna have to take down is uh what's the big cable company out east that owns everything time warner yeah there you go yeah time time warner owns you know not only entertainment properties but the means to distribute them and so we're just oh yeah yeah sam points out that jeff bezos he'll, he'll probably end up buying everybody else Let's talk about Rocket Lab. There's not a whole lot to talk about, but it's really cool. They now have a new launch site at Wallops. Yay! Very cool. And I and I watched some of the press conference. I don't know if you saw it, Ben, but uh, no, I didn't. You know, it was just kind of the same thing that you would expect. Uh, there was Peter Beck there, a couple of NASA officials, I believe, and they had talked about how great it is to have this new installation here. And it's mostly just. Um, it's for the sake of military U.S. government payloads because mm-hmm. I guess there is a lot of security concerns and like maybe they don't want to transport something halfway across the world to launch it. So it's just you know like easier to have a launch facility here. Yeah, you got to go to where the customers are. Right. So this came together pretty quickly, at least compared to something like SpaceX. Um, this is a much more smaller facility. So they broke ground in late last year, and so it's been a little over a year, and now they're open for business. So that's pretty impressive. But they have just one launch pad. And that is Launch Complex 2, which is, I believe, right next to where they launched the Antares rockets. And I think that that's Launch Complex 1 or LC-1. There wasn't a lot of information on what the key changes were. But basically, from what they've said, the pad itself looks pretty much the same. So they didn't have to do a lot of upgrading there. But they did make some changes, but I guess they were just small ones. But the key changes to the facility as a whole are that they have increased security. And again, this goes back to the Air Force and any kind of payload that they might want to launch. And I believe that the Air Force is their first customer coming up uh, in a couple months. And they also have a separate integration facility, which can support multiple electrons. I don't know how many um, how many they can fit in there, but I imagine it's you know kind of a hangar, something like what SpaceX has, and maybe they can put three or four of them in there, or maybe even more since they're pretty small rockets. Oh, Leon says four. Four, okay, yeah. And then they have a separate clean room for payload processing. That's always a good thing to have when you're dealing with these, you know, Hmm. classified payloads or who knows what. But that's about all the information about those changes. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot revealed in the press conference. The first launch should be coming up in spring. I believe it's actually the second quarter. So, yeah, spring is what, through March? I should know this. Or no, through April? I don't actually know when spring begins. It's the, the equinox, right? Right. Yeah. So sometime I believe in like April or May is when they're going to do their first launch from Wallops. So yeah, that's it on that. But uh, an interesting side note, just to get back to their attempt to reuse a first stage. uh, One thing that we had talked about last week that I talked about with Dennis and we weren't sure about was why they had such bad video reception. I thought it was just because that first stage had, you know, probably dipped over the horizon and they just couldn't get good telemetry. But it turns out that that was actually to conserve bandwidth because they wanted to get telemetry for all the data coming off of the rocket. So they had to prioritize that. It makes sense. 
the next launch, which will be in January. So the next launch coming up next month should have a better video feed. So I guess they're going to increase the bandwidth there. I guess just get better both video and telemetry. That will be the next launch next month. And that one is going to be, I believe, more or less just gathering the data that they need like this past one. The launch after that, which will be a couple months after that, so probably around like March or April, they're going to actually integrate the parachute, but they're still not going to capture it, but they're just going to bring it down into the ocean. So that's one step closer. And then the next launch after that is going to be the helicopter capture. So we have like pretty much we're looking at three launches until we see an actual capture of that first stage. But that's not long, really. That's, you know, probably the first half of next year. So I think they're moving pretty quickly. And I guess it just shows how fairly easy it is to do reuse if you don't have to land that first stage and, and instead you just capture it the old fashioned way with a hook on a helicopter. So I think that's pretty cool. So I, I just love, I'm, I'm watching this footage right now and I just love the sparks that come out of the second stage engine. Oh, I think I remember seeing that. So Beck kind of talked about it a little bit and we're not sure if he actually gave us the right answer. Most people's guesses was that it was, you know, engine rich combustion where you're, you know, parts of the engine are slowly falling away or, or you know getting burned up and uh, it Beck said that it's actually it has to do with the way that coking works in the engine where you get carbon buildups that then flake off but that happens in every engine and we don't always see these bright sparks coming out so um, it seems like there's probably another piece to the puzzle that kind of raises the question why don't we see sparks more often? Because if you get a decent amount of engine coking, you would think that you would see stuff. Yeah, kind of like so I, I think I think the uh, the key is not that other engines don't spit out pieces of carbon. I think the key is that this engine spits out pieces of carbon either in a specific way or they're not just carbon. There's, there's something else in there that allows mm -hmm. them to get bright. Um, I, I doubt it has anything to do with the electric turbine, but... You know, who knows? It'd be fun if it was like pieces of battery falling out or something. But that, <laughs> that that's that's just ridiculous. That's just me being silly. Most likely not pieces of battery. Yeah, certainly not pieces of battery. If if there's battery in your engine exhaust, you have a problem. Like it's running battery rich. <laughs> that's that's real bad. If that's happening, you got big problems. Let's translate on over to a second story. Osiris Rex <laughs> landing site selected. So yeah, yeah, we now have a landing site for Osiris Rex. Yeah. So they picked Nightingale. It is up in the northern latitudes, which is good because, you know, there are narrower temperature swings, you know, as the sun rises and sets. Uh, it's it's already going to stay colder and the, and the temperature is going to be more stable. And the idea is that um, hopefully that will result in better preservation of water, right? So the water isn't just ice laying around. It's, it's bound up in minerals. Um, but also they're hoping that it means that it will preserve organic compounds as well. So hopefully we'll... We'll get a better sample of that. So they picked uh, their sites based on what was safest, really. <laughs> this is kind of one of the things it comes down to. So so Nightingale is a reasonably safe to land, but, you know, there are still gigantic boulders all the all over the place. Um, and the, the most notable one, I think we might have even mentioned on the show before, it's called Mount Doom. It's a giant boulder hmm. named Mount Doom. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure we have mentioned it. Right. Because I feel like I would remember that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's nice. Um, but Nightingale is uh, is basically inside of a crater. 
Um, the crater is reasonably small. It's the size of a few parking spots is the way that uh, Dante Loretta described it. And so before landing happens, um, which is going to be uh, August next year, before that happens, they're going to do a bunch of extra work getting as detailed maps as they can of the site. So one of the interesting things is that not only, you know, you, ha you have to map your landing site, but they actually upgraded the software in the spacecraft. And so they'll be able to make this map upload it to the spacecraft and it's going to be able to use this really detailed map uh, for navigation and also for determining whether it's safe to continue the mission. So as it's landing, it's going to be looking at, you know, kind of the, the safe envelope that it can, uh, that it can inhabit, that it can occupy, kind of figure out where it's safe to go and it can make decisions on the fly if, if this just is not a, a suitable site. I really hope that at some point we'll be able to get to talk about um, the software upgrades that they did because guidance software is fascinating, at least to me. <laughs> and so uh, updating, you know, do, doing major upgrades to your guidance software, not just tweaking the params file is, is pretty cool to do on the fly. Um, so Nightingale was not the only site that they looked at. They had previously downselected to four sites. And one of the other sites they're keeping around as a backup. It's called Osprey. And uh, so they're basically going to, have to switch to Osprey if their detailed mapping of Nightingale shows that it's just going to be too hazardous to actually land there. Um, like I said, sampling, the landing is planned to happen in August 2020. They have the capability to do up to three sample attempts. We'll see if they use one, two, or three. It could be any of them. Um, the plan is to pick up uh, 60 grams worth of sample minimum and two grams worth of sample maximum. And I think uh, they'll basically uh, sample until they get 60 grams and then stop because it's a dangerous thing to do. So uh, I, I think that the two kilo kilograms upper end is is very, very unlikely to happen. That's just kind of the maximum they can store. And then, of course, they're going to bring those samples home. They're, they're planning on departing the asteroid sometime in 2021. Time to do short and sweet. We got three of them this week. The first one is a new European rocket gets funding. The European space company ESAR or ISAR Aerospace. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's European. You can pronounce it however you want. Yeah, we we came up with that rule, didn't we? No, no, they came up with that rule. They they pronounce everything all sorts of different ways, and they don't care. Okay, or maybe even ISAR. Actually, I'm not sure. So European space company ESAR, ISAR, or ISAR. Who knows? <laughs> uh, they have received a 17 million dollar Series A investment round of funding led by the Airbus and venture capital investor Early. Uh, the rocket named Spectrum is being developed as a low-cost launch vehicle dedicated to deploying and resupplying satellite constellations. ESAR was founded in 2018 and has made rapid progress with the first launch of its Spectrum launch vehicle slated for late 2021. So, yeah, I've never heard of them, but they're going to be launching a rocket soon. Speaking of rockets getting ready to launch, the SLS core stage is complete. So recently we discussed SLS's core stage completing engine installation, and now NASA has declared the core complete. It has a few... Uh, uh, quote-unquote functional tests to complete uh, and then it will be ready to ship. It is expected to leave Michoud by the end of the year and begin its short trip on a barge to Stennis for static fire testing, including at least one full duration burn. While Artemis 1 may happen November 2020, it is a date that is contingent on multiple systems including Orion. 
In addition, November is a, quote, zero margin date, according to Bridenstein, and he strongly expects the launch to happen in early 2021 instead. Yeah, so he, he called it uh, hanging on the edge of their fingernails. So anything happens and they and they mess it. And lastly, uh, Vector files for Chapter 11. So this is sad. Uh, small launch vehicle company Vector filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on December 13th. Uh, in August, Vector laid off nearly all of its 150 employees as a result of a change in finance. Um, and that's a quote-unquote change in financing. Those were the words that they used. This was caused by one of its investors, uh, Sequoia, terminating its funding of Vector over fears of how the company was being managed. This led to other investors backing out as well. Currently, Vector is being funded through debtor-in-possession financing from Lockheed Martin. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and uh, and some art. <laughs> no, yeah. I always try to tag it on there. Yeah, I mean, this definitely doesn't fit in questions. Well, no, it's a it's a question for me, so that that gets us into into questions. So okay, yeah, I'm putting a call out. I want to hear uh, from our listeners about uh, art and space and art and aerospace. So we have a listener who wrote in, uh, I didn't ask her if I could mention this. So I'm not, I'm not going to mention her name, but she's an artist who is looking to understand more about what kind of jobs artists do in aerospace. So, so my response was, oh, well, you know, uh, PAO is, is the place to go. Cause you know, we always need outreach and that kind of thing, but I'd really love to hear from our listeners. If you have an art background what should you, and you want to get into space and aerospace, um, what kind of job should you be looking for? And does anybody have any contacts that they would like? Because I, I love art and science being coupled together. We we need both of them and they work so well hand in hand. So I would love to do um, an interview or two, or maybe um, maybe a segment just talking about art in space. Um, so if anybody has any contacts that they'd like to, you know, people I need to go talk to or people who's, you know, artists who can tell stories about uh, working in the space industry, kind of just a general call. What has been your experience with art in aerospace? And uh, if you want to get into the aerospace industry and you're an artist, what what do you do? Yeah, it's a good question because so as you were saying that, I was thinking, is that even how it works in the industry or do they just hire, you know, a graphic designer of some sort and then just, you know, get the job done. Like, like, I don't know how the industry works with respect to art. So, well, gra- graphic design is art. So I-, I think that that is, that is a major way that art happens in space. But I think you're kind of aiming for sort of a more the, the creative definition of art. Let me express myself, right? Instead of just let me build clear graphics and right. Is that, is that what you're saying? I guess I was just wondering, like, is there any space agency or what have you that actually hires a full-time artist to work? You know, like that's just not something that I ever thought about. Yeah. Graphic designers are artists. Exactly. But to me, that seems more like a, we'll hire you like on a case by case basis. I see. They, yeah. Far, farming out contracts. No, 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 for sure. They, they absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, uh, you know, some people will, will just do contracts, but yeah, absolutely. There are graphic designers. Designers employed full time by SpaceX and Tesla. I mean, every time, every organization in the industry, if they have anything more than a website that hasn't changed in years, any anybody who puts out videos or has a Twitter account, all of these things, they all generally are going to employ somebody full time to just work on their product. Mm-hmm. 
what she's more asking seems to me to be more like actual art art, like not necessarily just like graphic design, but how about art just for the sake of it? Yeah. And that might be a hard niche to find and then fill, yeah. but yeah. it's totally worth it. Expressive art in any field is, is right. hard, you know, yeah. it's hard to convince people that it's worth paying money for, um, which is why mm -hmm. the starving artist trope exists. So I guess, I guess, how do you, how do you do art in space without being a starving artist? So there you go. That That's my question for this week. Cool. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. So you weren't here when we picked out the clue, but it was very much inspired by your clue from the previous week. Yeah, it was a fantastic clue. What was it? The clue was, what's the point of a space telescope with a lifetime of less than a week? <laughs> Which uh, yeah, is kind of a little take on your yeah, clue. Yeah, I really like that. And we just had three winners, uh, Cy Kyle, Kristen Lowe, and Ben Howard. They were all correct, and we had no incorrect guesses. So I think there that this go. was a pretty good clue. All right, so this week in spaceflight history, an event that I did not pick, but that I back wholeheartedly is the 18th of December, 1973. It was the launch of the Orion 2 Space Telescope on board Soyuz 13. So uh, Orion 2 implies that there's an Orion 1. Oh yeah, uh, was it Ben Hallert that made a joke about, you know, this is yet another mission yeah, with, yeah, with yeah, a confusing <laughs> name of Orion? Yeah, we, we love Orion in space, don't we? Um, so Orion 1 uh, was launched on Salyut 1, uh, but Orion 2 um, was notable in that it was the first crewed space observatory. So it was uh, a meniscus telescope, so it had a really wide field of view. And despite its wide field of view, it actually was um, was pretty darn accurate in its pointing ability. So it had a coaxial star sensor, so that's a star sensor pointing in the same direction as the telescope. And then also a second star sensor pointed at 45 degrees off of that. So in two axes, you get a f a less than five arc second accuracy. And then in the optical axis, so this, I, I believe this would be rotating around the direction that you're pointing. So you really care about where you're pointing. Rotation's important, but it's not that important. And that was uh, 30 or less than 30 arc seconds in, in that direction. And so this was a UV telescope. Sorry, this is, this is a short uh, This Week in Spaceflight History, but it was a UV telescope. So they had, um, uh, they took photos on film because it's 1973. And so they had UV sensitive film. It was actually made by Kodak, but I mean, most film was at that point. And they did some really cool things. So they were observing um, large numbers of stars, like thousands of stars and um, getting UV spectra back from these stars. But not only did they observe stars, they actually um, did the first spectral analysis of a planetary nebula, and they discovered that it had aluminum and titanium floating around in there. And that was the first time that we'd ever seen either of those elements uh, in a planetary nebula. So yeah, I, I'll admit, I did this one at the last second, so I don't have more information. But <laughs> it's it's pretty cool to have uh, crude space telescopes and short-lived space telescopes. And uh, I don't believe we brought this back to the ground. I believe it was installed in the orbital module of the Soyuz. So yeah, uh, you know, it burned up. But pretty cool to cut a hole in that. Well, you, you know, I'm joking, but to cut a hole in the side of your spacecraft and stick a, stick a telescope through, it's a pretty neat thing to do. Yeah. The only bit to come back to Earth was the film cartridges themselves, which right. was all of 4.3 kilograms, according to Wikipedia. So, you know, you launch this whole big thing up there and you bring back some film cartridges. That's a, that's a decent amount of film. Yeah. 4.3 kilograms, I guess, of Kodak film. Yeah. I don't know what that looks like, but I don't think I've ever seen physically... No, I'm sure I have. Like a roll of film, at least outside of a movie theater. I don't think <laughs> I've ever seen one. I believe I this would it. be a yeah, a reel, like you're thinking, not a yeah, not one of those self-contained rolls, and not like a bunch of Polaroids or anything like that. <laughs> That's a good image, though. <laughs> That's a good image, though. I like that. All right. Well, uh, so 
uh, I have a clue for next week. I I don't know if we're going to do one next week or not. We might do a two-week one next week. So I have a clue for next week. It's 1968, writing the best bird we can find. We're going to get a, I'm going to say right now, we're going to get a lot of people with this one. So yeah, if you think you know what that is in reference to, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Now on to upcoming launches. All right. So first up is a launch that I'm really excited for. It is an Atlas V in the N22 configuration. Ooh, N twenty two. That doesn't even sound familiar to me. It, yeah, because it's never it's never flown in this configuration yeah. before because it's a special configuration for CST one hundred Starliner. This is uh, OFT one, the orbital test flight. It is an uncrewed uh, flight of Starliner. It is indeed going to International Space Station, just like um, the Crew Dragon demo uh, did. And oh. <laughs> It's gonna, it's gonna be good. I mean, you know, you can, you can pick sides, but really, you have to be excited for humans getting into space. Um, mm-hmm. And seeing humans getting into space from a country that hasn't put humans in space for a very long time is truly, truly exciting. So one more uh, step on that path. So this is launching on December twentieth at eleven thirty-six UTC. So sorry, I'm, I'm just looking up what is N twenty-two. I realize it's because they're, mm-hmm. they're launching Starliner, but what does N two and two so stand for? Or is it N means no fairing? The first okay. two is two SRBs. And the second two is two Centaur engines on the upper stage. Okay, cool. All right. Thank you. It's All right. so cool. I love the fact that- And for no fairing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally, you know, it's it's 401 or 411, 501. And it's like, oh, no, this is N22. And then after that, we have on December 24th, a Proton M with a Block DM03 upper stage. And that is launching Electro L number Three, uh, Electro L is a series of meteorological satellites developed for the Russian Federal Space Agency by NPO Lavochkin. So yeah, these are going to capture real-time images of clouds, the underlying surface of the Earth. Okay, the Earth or the, uh, the Earth's underlying surface. So I guess just the surface of the Earth is what that means. Uh, underlying the clouds is what it means. The tops of clouds and the Earth's surface when the clouds aren't in the way. Because at first that, I was thinking like, well, like subterranean. Yeah, right, right. That's one of the reasons why I don't like reading their literal uh, or the way, you know, when they actually write it out. I don't I don't like reading the actual words. I like rephrasing it because yeah. otherwise you wind up with Earth's underlying surface. So. so that's launching on December 24th with a launch window on December 24th of 1200 UTC through 1240 UTC. So just a 40 minute launch window. And that's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan as per usual. And and then um, also hopefully flying this month is uh, a Long March 4B with Seabers 4A. So this is um, uh, an Earth observation satellite. We've talked about Seabers in the past. So right now it's it's pretty much TBD. It's um, Sam in the chat uh, says that it's understood to fly uh, December 27th sometime. Um, but they've had an order for radio silence. So we probably won't get an update. So, so that may be after next week's show, but we're not sure what time, uh, it's going to fly. So, uh, Keep on out for that. And then also, lastly, on December 21st, we have the docking of that CST Starliner. So that coverage is beginning at 5 o'clock in the morning, East Coast time. But the docking itself is scheduled at 8.08 a.m. So I'm going to try to watch it. I really want to see this. So I'm going to need to set an alarm clock or something. Well, even if you don't get up at 8 a.m., 
the hatch opening is a little bit more reasonable. So that hatch opening is actually at 1045. So, okay, that, yeah, that is more reasonable. I mean, I suspect this is going to be like an all day thing or through at least the first half of the day because, you yeah. know, it's a very slow process before they make ingress and they, yeah, it's all very procedural. So, yeah, well, two, two and a half hours at least, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely going to try to watch that because I just think it's going to be so cool to see. Yeah. We're just so close. So, yeah one step closer to putting people into space again. And so then that, that'll that undock next Friday, but we'll talk about that on our show next week. Give you a, rem a reminder of that. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So it is time then to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. So if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We are Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.